turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Be in prayer about that. Now, we've been, as a way of just kind of focusing our attention here on what God's going to do in this next step, we've been um, spending quite a bit of time talking about who are we? What is the we we're talking about? We laid some foundational principles and passions that we have as a church body that I think are part of the unique vision that God has called us to. Not every church is called to have these visions, this particular vision, but we are. And it's, it's what we have in common, despite our uh, otherwise incredible diversity. And now we're at, taking this opportunity to ask uh, some, a very important question, and that is, uh, what is the, uh, some biblical teachings about stewardship? We know who we are, where we, we're supposed to go, and how are we going to get there? It involves us pooling our resources. So we're taking this time, started last week, we'll, we'll finish it up this week, uh, asking the question, what are some biblical principles about stewardship? I want to read out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. Paul is here in the middle of a fundraising campaign. We sometimes think, we, we, get, we get a little dreamy-eyed about uh, the early church. We think, oh, they just did everything by the power of God, and they did everything by the power of God. But sometimes we think that they didn't need money. That's a modern, secular, carnal kind of a thing. Uh, wrong. You read, read, read Acts. Read the epistles. Uh, money was an issue back then. It's in this world, uh, one of the things that's necessary to get things done. So here Paul is doing a fundraising thing. And here's what he says to the Corinthians. I'm not commanding you. It's a very important principle for Paul. He's not going to tell someone what to give. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Now look at the other that he first uh, raises up for the Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The Corinthians, measure your sincerity next to Jesus Christ. He is your example. And here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. He's giving advice here. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but uh, also the first to desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Note that phrase, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable. Whatever it comes out to be, if your heart is in the right place, it's huge in God's account book. Um, the, 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 the amount isn't the issue. The willingness is the issue. If the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. So don't compare yourself to a person who, like several weeks ago, uh, pledged a half a million dollars to the building fund. I can't do that, you can't do that, but don't think that yours is less important because what God's looking at here, what's at issue here is our hearts, not our pocketbooks. Our pocketbooks reflect our hearts, but the heart's the crucial matter. If God's probably got his own printing press on money if he needed to use it. That's not the, the lack of money isn't the issue. Um, look at uh, chapter 9, verse 6. Let's start with verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. They had pledged something. So Paul was saying, I want you to stick to that. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Paul is saying, I'm not about to pull anyone's teeth here. I want it to be given freely. Remember this, he says in verse 6, Whosoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word there is, uh, the, the literal meaning of it is hilarious. And it describes not only the attitude with which you give, but the nature of the gift that you give. God loves hilarious givers who give hilarious gifts. Each man should... Um, I already read that. Okay, verse 8. And God is able. Oh, yes, He is. He is able. Sorry. 
Uh, to make, that's the Boyd paraphrase, the Norm paraphrase, to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. He's able to do that. Amen? Verse 10, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich. Hallelujah. In every way. Why? So that you can go get another boat, maybe, but also so that you can be generous on every occasion. Okay, God wants to bless your socks off so that you can bless other people's socks off. This is God's program. I bless you, you bless them, and it goes on from there. Uh, he, he's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's God's economy plan. And through our generosity, uh, it will result in thanksgiving to God. Amen. Let me pray a short prayer here. Father, let the power of the Word, through the power of your Spirit, land on us. Father, I'm aware that right now I'm going to start throwing stones at a God, a false God. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a God that influences everything about our culture. Uh, Lord, so I pray for protection for me uh, in, in the spiritual realm. I also pray, Lord God, that your spirit would be working, uh, God, to uh, collapse whatever triggers the enemy might have installed in our minds, as he did in my mind, about money issues, so that we don't hear what the word teaches on it. Lord God, free your people. Free your people to live in the joy and the freedom uh, that you've called us and saved us uh, to walk in. Let it be done, Lord. I can't do it, uh, Lord, but you are able, by the power of your spirit, to turn whatever I say into something that will bear kingdom fruit. So I relinquish it to you and ask that you'd have your way here. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Greed. Last week we talked about greed. And we saw last week that um, this is what we're up against whenever we're talking about money in this culture. This is a big one. This is, this is like the toughest, uh, this is uh, the hardest thing in this culture. Because there is a false god of greed uh, that is everywhere. Greed is arguably the most harped on sin in the Bible. You'll never find anything that is spoken of against more frequently than greed. It is called idolatry. It is listed along with murder and adultery and homosexuality. In fact, not only is it listed right up there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, but it's uh, spoken of more than any of those other sins. In fact, it's spoken of in the Bible more than all of those other sins put together. Think about that. This is a huge issue for God. What is greed, this horrendous, terrible, uh, disgusting sin that we name our, 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 our shows after? Think about it. Um, it is uh, the desire, the root meaning of it means to increase. It's always wanting an increase for yourself. Always wanting more. It's about hoarding what you have. It's about possessing what you have and wanting more of it. Always wanting, being hungry for more, questing after more. Greed causes people to forget about God, forget about what the purpose of life is, forget that this is not the kingdom, the kingdom is coming, forget our responsibility to others, forget our responsibility to our captain to be doing his work. Greed causes us to... It, it is the epitome of the flesh. The flesh is self-centered. The flesh is self-indulgent. The flesh wants to always pamper itself. The flesh puts the self first. And one way of saying all that is to say greed. Now, what we're up against in this culture is this. We not only have a culture that has greed, every culture has greed, but we live in a culture that's run by greed. In fact, it is this bad. Our culture, and more specifically, our whole economy runs by taking the number one sin of the Bible and making it the number one virtue of the economy. Think about it. 
For all the good that capitalism has done, and I'm not a socialist, and I'm not a cap- capitalist. I, I mean, I'm not, well, I'm not a capitalist either. I'm a, I'm a Christian, okay? Uh, I live in a culture that's capitalist, but I, you know, I, it does a lot of good. Fine. I think it's the smartest thing going in a fallen world. It works best in a fallen world. Nothing else really works as good. But there's a reason why capitalism works so good in a fallen world. It's because the world has fallen. And fallen people live in the flesh, and the flesh wants stuff. So what this economy does is it takes that whole thing, that self-indulgent, self-absorbed, narcissistic self, and it puts it... It puts it at center stage, and it runs the economy with it. So we have a culture of people, the economy runs on this, who are perpetually dissatisfied. If they ever got satisfied, the economic program wouldn't work at all. It keeps people perpetually satisfied. Rats running on a treadmill of, I want, I got to get, I got to buy, kind of uh, mentality. That's what runs the whole system. And we are bombarded daily, repeatedly, hourly, minutely, with, uh, through various media, to be thinking this way, to, be, to think of ourselves this way, we're trained, we're conditioned to compare ourselves with the 4% of people on the planet who are above us rather than the 96% of people who are below us. So we never feel as rich as we are. We always feel like we're just on the, on the verge and we're hardly getting by. We always feel like we need more, want more, got to get more, and that is the success of capitalism. But you see, we believers, for all the good that capitalism brings, fine, in the fallen world, you got to you know, do what you got to do. But our ultimate allegiance isn't to capitalism, is it? Our ultimate allegiance isn't even to America. Our ultimate allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And we are to be seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness above all else, which means we should be suspicious of and critical of everything else. And we need to be very aware, because the Lord commanded us to be aware, of the downside of riches. There's a dangerous side of riches. There's nothing evil about being rich, but there's a danger that all who are rich need to be aware of. And it's the danger of greed. The more you get, the more you keep, the more you want, and you forget about God and you forget about others. One proof that our culture as a whole is bewitched by this God, the God of greed, one proof of it is that everything Jesus said would happen has happened with our culture. In 1960, I mentioned this fact last year, or last week, um, uh, we, were, we lived three times above the global average and uh, 100 or 40 times uh, uh, higher than the poorest 20% of people on the planet. That's 39 years ago now. Um, and we gave 2.5% of our gross national product to helping the poor as a, as a country. In 1994, 34 years later, we're now living four times higher than the global average in terms of our standard of living, 160 times better than the poorest 20% of people on the planet, but we gave less than one-tenth of what we gave in 1960, percentage-wise, to helping the poor. What does that tell you? It tells you Jesus was right. The more we get, the greater the gulf is between us and the poor, the less we, we care about them. We keep more and more to ourselves. Giving in, 19, uh, in the 1950s was around 5% of our income. Now it's under 2%. The average, the average person gives less than 2% of their income away. We keep 98% of it uh, to ourselves. All that is simply to say this. We've got to be aware of the God of this culture. We've got to be careful not to be influenced by the God of this culture. We are called, are we not? If Christianity means anything, if following Jesus means anything, if being a believer means anything, it means swimming upstream against the culture, amen? It means, it means going against the current. It means listening to your captain. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that the good soldier is not overly involved, doesn't become entangled in civilian affairs, but is always seeking to please his commanding officer. We are not to be entangled in civilian affairs. If our, if our faith, the, the intensity and the passion of your faith can be measured by the extent to which you are willing to buck the culture, not go along with the cultural stream. 
especially on this issue, because this is the center of the culture. What I want to talk about here in the next 20 minutes, I want to lay out five biblical principles that the Lord gives us to help us do that, to help us swim upstream, to help us buck the culture. If you listen to the, if, if we go by Scripture and, and apply these five principles to our life, there's no way that the culture will make inroads on you. You will be a free person. Principle number one. We talked on it last week. I'm just going to mention it again here. It really, it really encompasses all the principles. It's the fundamental thing. Um, you can't, in fact, you can't do this principle without doing the other four. I could really end my sermon after this one, but I don't want to let out early. That'd be a sin. So, the Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Principle to live your life by. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. In a culture where you have every commercial saying, Seek me first. Make, 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 me, make me your highest priority. Come and get me. Come and buy me. You want me. If you're going to be sexy, you've got to wear me. If you're going to be respectful, you've got to drive me. In a culture where you have all these seek me first coming at you day and night, the believer has got to resolve in his heart repeatedly that my job, our call, is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and to trust God for all this other stuff. Amen? That's what it's all about. To seek God first doesn't mean that it's not a chronological first. Like first you seek God and then you spend the rest of your day seeking other things. No, the seeking first that Jesus is talking about is a priority first. This is, this is to be our first priority, which means this. This isn't a... God isn't in competition with everything else. Rather, the seeking first of God is to encompass everything else. The way that we live our life is to demonstrate, is to manifest the fact that we're seeking God first. The way we do our families has got to manifest the fact that we're seeking God first. The way we spend our time should manifest the fact that we're seeking God first. The way we relate to other people should manifest the fact that we seek God first. And the way we spend our money should manifest the priority that God is first in our life. Seek first the kingdom of God and trust God for everything else. We need to understand this, you guys. We are among a small minority of people on this planet who really know what is going on in this world. Uh, uh, most people don't have a clue. We understand that this life is not an end in and of itself. In fact, this life is just a little tiny preparatory footnote to the real thing. Amen? This life is a probationary stage. It's a gestation period. Uh, God is working towards uh, building His own kingdom that will last forever. But this is a prelude to it. We're this little infants in the womb getting ready to come out, as it were. Um, and, and knowing that should change everything, that, the way we look at life, the way we, the way we do life, uh, the priorities that we have. We are among a few people on the planet who understand. Believers, I'm talking about all believers here now, are, are those who really should understand that the things that matter are the things that do not pass, that pass away. That's why Jesus said, store for yourselves treasures in heaven. Be investing in the kingdom of heaven where moth and rust does not corrupt um, and where thieves can't steal it. And that on earth, which you know is going to go with you down the gra- in, into the grave. This has changed, this priority, this focus, this vision, this understanding of life, knowing that we're in a war zone, knowing that there's a job to do, knowing that everything that we're about has got to manifest God first in our life, knowing that we've got to ration what we have for the wartime effort, knowing that should set us apart from the average person who doesn't understand that about life and therefore chases the things that are here and now as a way of trying to fill the void in their soul. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. In all things, seek God first and trust God for all the other things to be added unto you. A second principle, which tells us how to do it, is this. Follow the example of Jesus Christ. In everything in life, Jesus Christ is our example. 1 Thessalonians 1.16, Ephesians 5.1, and a number of other verses tell us that we're to be imitators of Jesus Christ. Imitators of Jesus Christ. The word in Greek for imitate there means copycat, or it, it can even mean imprint, or shadow of something. Did you ever play, like you know, Simon says, 
uh, or the mirror game, or did you ever have an obnoxious little sister who would start, whatever you would do, she would do, they'd parrot you? Uh, yes, uh, you know, like, and then you turn around and say, stop it, they go, stop it, knock it off, knock it off, I'll hit you, I'll hit you, and they drive you crazy. But, but whatever you do, they do. That's what the word in Greek means. Be an imitator of Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, Hebrews 12:1 says, fixed on Jesus, and whatever you're seeing him do, just shadow Jesus. Whatever you're seeing him do. He, you know, Jesus says this, it's like Simon says, but with Jesus. Jesus says, do this, you do this. Jesus never did that. But we're going to be looking at his life and asking the attitude that he's got is the attitude that we're supposed to have. The mindset that he has is the mindset we're supposed to have. The deeds that he has are the deeds that we're supposed to have. Now, Paul appeals to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, when he says to the Corinthians, you know, uh, uh, consider Jesus Christ, who even though he was rich, yet he made himself poor, that we might be made rich. And what Paul is talking about here, and it's incredible, folks, is that he's referring to the riches that Jesus Christ had before he emptied himself and became a human being. Jesus Christ was rich in glory. Jesus Christ was rich in love. Jesus Christ was rich in joy. Jesus Christ was rich in peace. Jesus Christ, as, as, as uh, part of the triune God, had everything, was in want of nothing, the perfect bliss of heaven. God wasn't up there being lonely. God is perfectly self-sufficient and satisfied. But he looked down upon a race of people that he had created who thought that they were God and wanted nothing more than to be free of God. I'm referring to us. And they needed a Savior. And so Jesus Christ, though he was rich, he said, you know what? I'm going to lay it all aside and become one of them and die uh, for, uh, for their behalf. Paul puts it like this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. That Jesus Christ, though he was by very nature God, he didn't cling to his uh, divine prerogative. He wasn't greedy. That's what greedy is. Mine. That's mine. I want it. I can be happy. I can be joyful. It's all for me. He did the opposite of that. Though he had all of that, it was his by divine right. The Bible says, Paul says, he emptied himself of it. Kenosis is the Greek word. He divested himself of it. He laid it aside. The joy, the peace, all of that, the power, the omnipotence, and he became a human being for our sake. And then he became poor. Didn't even live in a house. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. But the Son of Man had not way where to lay his head. But that was just the beginning of the way that he was poor. He was poor in terms of he went to the cross. He suffered for our sake. He died for our sake. He died a God-forsaken, damnable death for our sake. And now Paul has the gall to say, Go thou and do likewise. This is what the Lord did for you. Now live your life that same way. Whatever you see Jesus do, that's what you're to do. You talk about folks being radical for the Lord. It, it can't get more radical than this. Be a, this is what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It applies to every area of our life. It means this. Uh, uh, that, that, that attitude, that mindset. Paul says it explicitly. In, in the verse before the one I just quoted to you in Philippians chapter 2. He says this. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. That though he was in the form of God, yet he emptied himself and made himself uh, nothing for our sake. Take on this mindset. Uh, live your life this way. See the world as a stage full of people who have got needs and you are empowered, you are equipped, and you are called to be one of the ways that God can meet those needs. But find the joy and the principle and the obligation and responsibility of living life in a giving mode rather than a sucking mode. Everything about our culture would tell you to live your life like a vacuum cleaner trying to suck life out of the environment around you. But God says, you know what, I'll give you all you need on the inside so you can live your life this way. It's about giving to other people, about sacrificing for other people, knowing that you don't need it here and now, knowing what the score is, knowing what life's about. You live your life following Jesus Christ, investing into others because others last forever and nothing else does. Amen? Be an imitator, a copycat of Jesus Christ. On top of all that, know this. God just doesn't tell us to do that and say, good luck with it. He says this. In fact, it comes out of the passage that we read earlier in John 14, 23. 
He says, you know what? I'll come inside of you and I'll do it through you. Jesus Christ comes and takes residence inside of us. You have got, if you're a believer here this morning, you've got the character of Jesus Christ inside of you. And his desire is for that character to be formed. Ephesians 4 talks about this. That character to be formed and to grow and finally take up all of our being. So Jesus Christ comes shining through us. Uh, if you understand what I'm talking about here, it's good news. If, you're, if, you're, if this is your first time in the church and you're not familiar with Christianity, this is going to sound horrifying. But here's an analogy. It's sort of like Jesus is the ultimate uh, invasion of the body snatcher. Um, it, it, we literally have an alien living inside of us as we're an alien to this world. He's come and taken residence. And you've got to know this. He's here to take over the whole thing. Uh, and, and right now, amen, it's good news. It's good news. Some of you are like, wow, this is really weird, man. Uh, I'm not talking Star Trek. I'm talking Jesus Christ inside of us. And his goal is, he's, he's trying to take over our minds so that we think the way he thinks. And he's trying to take over our eyes so we see the world as he sees it. He's trying to take over our hearts so we feel about things the way he feels about them. And he, he wants to take over our, our bodies. Uh, and, and ultimately, he wants us to be so united that he is living out his life and fulfilling his character and fulfilling his mission through us, praise God. That's why the Bible says that it's God who is in you, working both to will and to do His good pleasure. Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, I think it is. Uh, he's in you trying to form that. In other words, it's this. When, I'm, when the Bible says being an imitator of Jesus Christ, this isn't like some sort of giant self-effort thing we're supposed to like pump ourselves up with and think, you know, I can do it, I can do it, I think I can, I think I can, like the little train who thought he could. Uh, no, it's about, it's about yielding to God who's already in you. There is inside of you, if you will listen, turn off the commercials and listen, a voice, a spirit of prompting that is saying this. Live your life to give. He'll move you to give. He'll move you to, to invest. He'll change your heart. He'll change your values. But it's a matter of you yielding and giving up everything. Praise God. Seek first the kingdom of God. How do you do that? Imitate Jesus Christ. Be a Jesus Christ lookalike. Point number three has to do with attitude. The Bible, has the, the New Testament especially, has a lot to say, say about our attitude in giving. This is an important one. Very important. All these are important. Um, Paul says, we read the verse here earlier, Paul said, the giving, every individual should decide for themselves what they are to give. Okay, there's really a couple principles based in, uh, put in this one. But I'm trying to crunch this down into a ten-minute thing here, so uh, I'm going to make this all one principle. Paul says, um, uh, every individual should give, uh, uh, make up their, their own mind what they're going to give. It should be done uh, gracefully, without compulsion, without pressure. Paul says that, and he, and he keeps on saying, I'm not putting pressure on you guys. I'm just calling you, I'm putting out the need, and I'm calling you to imitate Jesus. But he never gets involved in trying to get, he, he says explicitly, I'm not going to pull your teeth. That's my paraphrase of it. Uh, I, I, don't want to be, I don't want this to be done begrudgingly. If you're ever in an environment where you're starting to feel manipulated, I would suggest you to be, you know, really have your buzzers up. A lot of us have too many buzzers because we have been manipulated. And I'm asking God to shut those down so you hear what the Word really has to say about it. It's got to be individual. It, it, it's got to be done gracefully. It can't be, uh, it can't be coerced. And every person should give according to their means, Paul says. According to their means. There's a proportion here. Uh, and it should be done joyfully, out of a fullness, out of an abundance, as an opportunity, as an act of worship. That's how, we're, that's how our stewardship is to be. This raises an important issue. Yeah, a little bit of controversial issue. And I normally stay clear of controversial issues, but in this case, we need to talk about it. Okay, I don't. But actually, this to me is the funnest part. But here's the thing. You got, the whole question is, what's with this tithing doctrine? What about tithing? Uh, is that a, a doctrine in the New Testament? And you've got two schools of thought. We need to be, I just want to give a little teaching on this. 
Just goes with that. Those who say yes, uh, believers are supposed to give a tenth of all that they earn to the church, and that's a New Testament doctrine. It's a New Testament law. Okay, so in a lot of places you'll hear that preached a lot. Then you have others who say, and this is more the camp I'm in, that no, that is not a New Testament law. Um, now, let me put this all in context. Here's what you find in Scripture. From the very beginning, uh, from Genesis chapter 14, you'll find a pattern in the Bible of giving 10%. Abraham gave 10% of all that he had to Melchizedek, it says, um, as an act of worship to the Most High God. And that was before Israel was ever a nation. So we have this pattern of 10% that, that starts very early in the Bible. With the Jews in the Old Testament, it became law. It was, it was part of the 661 commandments that they had. They had to give a tenth. It was actually part of their tax. They gave 30% of their, uh, of their income to, uh, as taxes for, for, for the running of the government. And one-third of that went to the temple. That was their temple tax. And they ran the Levitical priesthood and, and uh, kept up the, the, the temple that way. And they, it, was by, it was law. They had to give that. God was irate with them when they didn't give that. Now, in the New Testament, you find tithing. You find a lot about the Bible, a lot about money in the, in the New Testament, but you only find tithing mentioned twice. It's mentioned when Jesus, in, in Matthew 22, is confronting the Pharisees. And he says, you, you tithe everything, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. Um, he's talking to Jews there, and it, so again, you'd expect him to say that because that's part of their obligation. And then it's mentioned again in Hebrews chapter 7, where the author simply points out that, that, uh, that Abraham had paid tithes to Melchizedek. So for that reason, I don't see it explicitly taught as a doctrine in the New Testament. Now, having said that, let me say this. What is more, far, far, far more important is not what percentage you decide to give. If 10% is something that God's laid on your heart, and for several years that is what God laid on our heart um, to, to, to give, then that's what you should give. But what is important to me is not whether or not the 10% you think is taught. What is explicitly taught is the attitude that you're to give whatever percent you give. And the attitude is to be one that it comes from the inside out. It's a joyful thing. It's a volunteer thing. You want to do it. God's forming His life and His character in you. I worry about people who never discover the joy of doing it that way because they're too busy trying to fulfill a percentage the other way. I've known people who just grind their teeth whenever they write out their offering check because they're, they're doing it because they think that they're going to get zapped by God if they don't do it. You see, and, and you're missing the point. I think God's up there saying, you know what, if it, if, if it hurts that much, then keep your money and wait till you grow to the point where you do it for free. Because when you get free and you learn how to do it from the inside out, 10% will be nothing to you. I mean, it's a... That's not, that, that's not where it's at. What's, what's crucial is that it's an individual thing. It's according to your means. Some people can give much more than 10%. Some people, people can't. Depends on, on, on your income and a lot of other variables. But the attitude is, is the same. I think that. Here, here's, I'll tell you where I'm at with this. My wife and I, several years ago, the Lord began to work with us. Uh, and we came to the conclusion that 10% was a good guideline for us. Because we weren't doing that. Uh, we, we tried to, but we weren't as disciplined as we should be, and so we were falling short of that. And we thought, for people who are four times richer than the global average, uh, this is a minimal thing for us. Uh, this is what, how God worked in our, in our life. And so we, over the course of a year, worked towards getting our giving up to that point. Now we've discovered the blessing of that, the joy of that, and the freedom of that. And now God's kind of saying, you know what, okay, let's move on to the next 10%. And, and you know, God's got to do that on an individual kind of thing. Be praying about how God would have you give and what it would be uh, and, and what portion uh, that might be. But that's a crucial question for us to be asking, which leads to my fourth principle. The fourth principle involves discipline. 
The New Testament um, uh, makes clear that giving is to be a disciplined thing, not a haphazard thing. Paul says, we read it earlier here in 2 Corinthians 9.5, set aside what you're going to give in advance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, Paul says this, set aside at the beginning of every week what you've decided to give, what God's led you to give, and lock it in. And what Paul's saying there, this is crucial, is that your giving shouldn't be haphazard. Whatever else, you, you know, however God moves on you, fine, but make a commitment to it and stick to it. Because if you don't do this, I will guarantee you the devil will make sure that he'll rob you of all the blessing you could give, uh, you could get by being a giver. Things will always happen. What we American Christians often do is that we plan for a lot of things, we budget for a lot of things, we're disciplined financially in a lot of things, or at least in a few things. But when it comes to the work of the Lord, it's kind of like, well, what, what do I have left over here? And yet, the Bible tells us we're to be seeking God first in everything, including our finances. How is that seeking God first? Let me put it this way. My wife and I are, are, are planning on taking a vacation in, in February, and, and so we've been saving up for this. It's going to cost a couple thousand dollars. We think that this is a good investment in our marriage, and we're going to do it. But you know what? I don't have that kind of pocket change. So about six months ago, we started saving for it. You put aside some, you put aside some, you know, and you've got to plan for this kind of stuff. You've got to plan for the car you're going to buy. You've got to plan for the house that you're going to build. You've got to plan for it to, to get a new dress or what have you. We understand that. But how is it that when it comes to the one that we're supposed to be seeking first, we don't plan? And so, like, well, whatever, you know, and, if it, and, and there's no pinch involved in that. Anything of value, there's a pinch on. I mean, it, it, you can tell how valuable it is to you by how much you're willing to sacrifice for it. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Paul's saying, don't let your giving be haphazard. Set aside, make a commitment, make a pledge, and stick to it. Now, the devil, like I said, what I found is you make a commitment and the devil starts working overtime to get you to break it. My wife and I, on, on this whole building thing, several weeks ago, month and a half ago, sat down with a razor blade and, you know, just kind of went through our budget saying, okay, what, what can we, 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 I, we really need to want to get behind this whole thing. Okay, we felt good about it. It's like, oh, this hurts in a real good way. Oh, it hurts so good. Um, but that's what it's about. It felt really good. Next day, I back out in my daughter's uh, car. I'm backing out of the driveway. She parked the car behind my, me and she never does that. So I'm backing out and I'm in a hurry. So wham, I smash into her car. Thousand dollar car bill right there. Uh, you know, and I'm going to blame it on the devil. <laughs> that was the devil. See, the devil's trying, you know. But the, the bottom line is this. Now, if we hadn't made that commitment the night before, our giving would have been $1,000 less. But Paul's saying, make the commitment and stick to it. This is, should have the same priority as an NSP thing, okay? Um, so be disciplined about it. And the fifth principle, the fifth principle is God's economy plan. And we touched on it last week. I'll just leave a little word about it because it's really cool, you guys. God says this, if you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. Now, he's not talking about what, what, what actual quantity you give. He's talking about, because it's according to your means. He's talking about percentages, okay? Uh, uh, and, and, and what you put out is going to come back to you. This applies in two ways. It applies uh, economically, but it also applies spiritually, and the spiritual thing is the more important. When you learn the, the, the principle, it, it runs throughout the Bible, the principle of being a giver instead of just a taker. Uh, and, and that's reflected in your finances. There is a joy and a peace and a power that comes from that that you couldn't get any other way. I believe most American Christians don't realize how much of the good stuff of their Christianity is being choked by the fact that they haven't gotten freed from the God of this culture. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 13, verse 48. He said, uh, uh, there's some seed that was sown on the ground and it got a rooting, but the weeds came up and choked that, 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 that seed. Okay? And then he explains to his disciples that choking, those weeds, are, um, 
are the riches of this world and the cares of this world. What Jesus is saying is this. When you hold on to things, when you're living life like this, trying to hang on to it, you are having the spiritual life sucked out of you. It's, it's being choked. It is there, but you're not walking in the full blessing of it, the full joy of it, the full peace of it, because you're, 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 you're clinging to stuff. There is, I'm telling you, a freedom. A freedom by realizing, by fulfilling what Jesus tells us to, to do, to not have any possessions. Live in your house, but don't cling to it. Don't possess it. Drive your car, but don't cling to it. Wear your clothes, but don't cling to it. Don't seek after it. There's a freedom in there. There's a joy in that. And just knowing that you're investing in stuff that will never end. Everything else you're going to invest in is going to die. But stuff that's for the kingdom of God pays eternal dividends. And just knowing that I'm stocking that away, is, is, there's a freedom there, folks. There's a joy there. But it means getting free from the God of greed. The second thing is that it does come back economically. The Bible promises it. It's a principle that runs throughout the whole Bible. Given it shall be given unto you. Uh, it's God's economic plan. And the reason why God wants to give it unto you is so then you can give more and bless more. So then he'll bless you more. And then you bless others more. And then he blesses you more. Um, uh, God's economic plan. In, in, in Matthew or in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, he says this to the to Israelites. You know, they had the law. It was part of their covenant. They were to tithe. And, and the Lord says this, you guys, you're robbing me. You're robbing me. We have, you, you've made a pledge and you're not fulfilling it. So therefore, you're going to be cursed financially. But if you will adhere to the pledge, if you'll stick to it, if you'll pay, bring your tithes in here. He says this. This is his words. Test me. Try me. And prove me that I will bless you. You can't contain how I'm going to bless you. God is saying, here's my program. Here's my economic plan. You've got your capitalism? Well, let me give you mine. Uh, this is how it works. You learn how to give. It's the opposite of the world. The world says the more you get, the more you have. The Lord says the more you give, the more you're going to have. It's the reversal of this world. And he says, I dare you. Try it. Finally, one final verse. Peter says, or David says this. Cast your bread upon the water, and it will come back to you. Pressed down, shaken together, full measure, overflowing. Now, what's he talking about there? This is a really cool analogy. Uh, I don't know if you ever feed ducks on a head of sea, but if you throw your bread upon the water, the waves push it back to the shoreline. Okay, cast your bread upon the water, and it will come back to you. But you're not going to just get those little soggy pieces that you throw out there. They, well, it'll be overflowing. It'll be overflowing. But not only will it be overflowing, pressed down, shaken together. What's he talking about? Well, David bought the same cereal we buy, and he knows that when you buy cereal, it's half full, isn't it? Why is your cereal half full? It's because it was full when they packed it, but it got pressed down and shaken together. And it settles when you do that. My wife and I, when we go to movies, we get this popcorn, and we love to put this uh, special kind of buttered popcorn salt on top of it. But it's really miserable if you do it just on the top, because then two commercials into the movie, you can't taste any longer. So what we do, we have a little ritual. It takes ten minutes. We sprinkle a little and shake it. We sprinkle and shake, sprinkle and shake. You know, and I'm the shaker, and she's the, the pourer, you know. It's a little ritual, but it's very important that we get all of those pieces salted. Now, here's the deal. By the time we're done, by the time we're done, we've got half the popcorn we had. I mean, some of it's falling on the ground, but, but it, it just settles. You know, it just settles. So what, what, what God is saying to us here, folks, is this. You invest in the kingdom of God, it's going to come back to you in a lot of ways. One of the ways it comes back to you is, is, is your, 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 your silo is going to be full. In fact, your silo is going to be flowing together, and that's after you pressed it down, and that's after you've shaken it together. It's still going to overflow, praise God. That's God's economy, and it's a good one. He promises, he says, test me on it. It will come true. Now, don't turn God into a stockbroker. Okay? Like, uh, some, you know, God's not out here to satisfy your carnality. When it means nothing to you, you get it. If, he, if you're always seeking it, he, he, he cares about you too much to bless you with that. Don't turn God into this vending machine where you're going to put a nickel in and get a quarter out. 
rather have kingdom values and you'll find, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. More than you ever imagined. Praise God. That's God's economic program. Let's stand up and pray. Um, the front of this auditorium is open. Uh, as we close, uh, if you want to come forward for prayer, I would encourage you to do that. If you're here and you're not a believer, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, don't leave here not having done that. Um, it's so simple and it makes an eternal difference. Uh, come forward and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Uh, pray with me this prayer. I, I, I want to do a we prayer, okay? A we prayer. Because um, we are here attacking the God of this age. And so let's do it Argentinian style. Yeah, join hands, would you, just for one minute. Repeat after me. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we come against every principality and every power and every dominion and every demon that sets itself up the truth of your word and the principles of life that you've given us to live by. We take every thought captive unto Jesus Christ and we, we rebuke everything that is contrary to your word. We come against the God of materialism and rebuke it in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, we pray by the power of God that your will would be done in our hearts, in our lives, in our finances, in our relationships. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Heavenly Father, by the power of your Spirit, Help us to live and help us to think the way you want us to live and think. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go forth in the power of God. We'll see you next week. God is good. God is good.